Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them. He's referring to ancient Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. The good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Some translations will say the word that was told them didn't, was not met with faith, so it didn't benefit them. For we who have believed and enter that rest, as he has said, and he quotes Psalm 95, 11 here, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his, God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter into my rest. Pause there for a second. The writer of Hebrews is simply establishing that God has declared a rest, and he qualifies that as saying, my rest. So there is a rest that is embedded in God, embedded in the personhood of God. And some of this is going to explain, it's not merely observing the Sabbath day, and then it's not merely going to be the rest that Israel was to have found when they entered the promised land physically through under the leadership of Joshua. So don't get snafu'd here, just bear with me. Since therefore, verse 6, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter, why? Because of disobedience. Ancient Israel failed to enter into their promised rest because they were disobedient. The last, chapter in verse, uh, the last verse in chapter 3 says that d- disobedience was described as their unbelief. Unbelief and disobedience, one and the same. And so verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, and the word already quoted, today, 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 if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here we go. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience or unbelief. For the word of God, somebody prophesied this over me right before I preached. I don't know if she knew I was preaching this, but for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do you feel the weight of that? Don't dodge it, feel it. We will give an account. We are naked and exposed to the one who we will eventually give our account to. But don't fear, verse 14, here's the relief. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I just read to you 16 verses, and I don't know if you picked up on it, but there are four statements that serve as a call, four separate calls all tied together, four calls for us to be pressing in. The first one's in verse 1. 
says, let us fear lest we fall short of the rest. The second one is in verse 11. Let us therefore strive or labor to enter into that rest. Uh, verse number um, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And um, I'll find the other one, I'm sorry. Um, I want to focus on these four calls in verse 1, verse 11, verse 14 and 15, and, and verse number 16. The, the, the fourth one was found in verse number 14. Let us hold fast. So just, just hear me with this. I'm going to take my time. I'm so not trying to wow anybody with this message. I'm going for our hearts. I feel like this is a call. So the callings, the pressing in, are to endure steadfastly, to expectantly approach the throne, to experience mercy and to find grace. If we are living at the end of the age, we need to pay close attention to the exhortations that are found all throughout the book of Hebrews. And we need to give strong but loving pushback on any thread of Christian teaching that informs us and tells us that our primary heart posture before the Lord should be kesarasara, whatever will be, will be. We must press back on the idea that there's not something to press into. Because friends, this is what's happening. Let me give you an image. Here's God, high, holy, sovereign, loving, sacrificial, merciful, compassionate. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God loves humanity. And here's the world. And Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you because it has hated me. So the world is in opposition. The world system always and forever has been and will continue to be in direct opposition to God. The love of the world means we don't have the love of the Father. If we love the world, we cannot love the Father. And these two things are in direct opposition to each other. The spirit of the age has been, is, and will continue to be hostile towards the spirit of God. So, the world is rapidly moving away from God in thought, in philosophy, in action, in word, in legislation, in every facet of society, the world, no matter where you are on the planet, the world system is anti-Christ. It is moving away from the Lord. Here's the thing. That world system is the atmosphere that's all around you. It is, in effect, sources of forces that are coming against your spirit to bring in lies because the devil is and always has been a deceiver, to bring in a, a self-aggrandizing, a self-elevating philosophy that tells us we are the center of the orbit. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of layers to how the world system seeks to corrupt us from the sincerity and the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
when you add to the world system that it is on the puppet strings of the deceiver himself, you have a grand puppeteer whose greatest desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's not out there somewhere. That's against you and your family. His desire, I'm going to make it personal, is to steal from you, to kill everything that you would ever use to glorify God. And if he can, he wants to destroy you. He can't touch your soul through the blood of Jesus, but he would love to destroy your life. So here's my thought. If we're living in a world system that is rapidly moving away from the Lord and we're not pressing in against that, what direction are we going? Pressing in is not just simply pressing into Jesus, it's pressing through. It's pressing forth. It's pressing on. So the casual Christian who has confessed Jesus as Lord, who has maybe even orthodox doctrine concerning who Jesus is, but she lives her life or he lives his life in neutral or in park, mark it down. You are being pulled back by the world and its system. You are, you, it is creating distance between you and God. We say, well, I don't feel that right now. Well, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen at the end of the age, and I'll base it on Scripture. There will be a strong delusion that is poured out at the end of the age. And we will be shocked. So strong is it that if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. Now, thank God it says it's not possible that the very elect, but it says if it was, it is that strong. And the casual Christian, the one that attaches himself or herself to the things of God, much like many in the, in the audience that received the letter from the, to the Hebrews, from, from the author of Hebrews, many of them had attached themselves to Messiah verbally, and they did it with, with um, great joy, and they did it with eagerness, and at the beginning they, they were enduring the loss, the forfeiture of their property, their reputation, their families. They were persecuted. But at the beginning, they said, it's worth it. Jesus is Messiah. It's worth it. But the writer of Hebrews, as you read through the letter, he's saying, you, you endured at the beginning, but I know now that some of you are pulling back. You're slipping back. What was happening? Well, friends, anybody can endure for a little bit. But when the little bit turns into much... And level one becomes level 10. And it didn't end like you thought it would because you were being faithful and honoring God and doing everything that you're supposed to do. And it doesn't end, but it grows worse. Let me tell you, the casual believer goes backwards. But the one who's made up her mind, who's pressing in, continues to press in. And let me give you this. I'm going to give it to you from these verses. Um... We never, ever, 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 never, ever, never, ever, never stop pressing in. Because the moment you do, it's that intense. So let's look at the verses, because I'm going to give you these four calls, and the backdrop is the intensity that I'm setting up right now. But the breakthrough, you got a backdrop that's pretty intense, but you got a breakthrough that's more intense. And if you'll hang with me till we get to the breakthrough, you're going to meet a compassionate king who says, I totally get you. I understand you. I'm for you. I love you. I'm with you. I've not abandoned you. I'll never forsake you, but you have to keep pressing in. 
That's what the writer is telling the audience to Hebrews. He's saying, you're not imagining things. You are losing some things. You are being persecuted. You are having to deny yourself. You aren't able to partake in all of the things the non-believers partake in. You are crucifying yourself daily. You are prioritizing an invisible king above, above every other visible thing that's offered you. You are coming distinct and separate, becoming a peculiar type of people in a world that is antichrist. You're not imagining that. That's happening. Keep doing it. That's what he's saying. And friends, that is the message that I'm hearing in my spirit for us. And so we have this first call. I'm going to give you these four let us statements. Here's the first one. It's this call to awareness. It's Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, look at this. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So he's writing to everybody there. Some are saved. Some are nominally Christians. They've professed Yeshua as Messiah, but they're sliding back. And what, what the writer is saying here is that a verbal confession absent of endurance is an empty confession. And he's, he's literally giving the warning. He's saying here, that we must have a holy, sobered fear that having begun with a confident testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord, having begun with that moment of confidence, we should fear lest we fail to press in and we end up being pulled back. Um... Some of you will disagree with me, and that's okay. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. What does that mean? That is a theological term that means this. A truly justified believer, one who is a believing sinner in repentance, is immediately justified, and I believe true justification is permanent justification. Let me tell you what I don't believe. Because back in my old denominational days, there was this flippant saying that was tossed around like candy on Halloween. What was it? Once saved, always saved. Bless God, once saved, always saved. I'm, I know I'm saved. I know, I know I'm getting drunk and sleeping around and cursing like a fool. And uh, I don't give, I don't serve, I don't tithe, I don't read my Bible, I don't pray. I'm not interested in any of that. But hallelujah, I prayed that prayer when I was nine. Bunch of hillbilly talk. I heard that so much, and usually it was in that accent, by the way, if you're wondering why I chose that accent. I just, I just, it's, that's the accent. <clears throat> I need to be careful here because I am from the South. <clears throat> but that was the accent of, uh, accent of theological ignorance back in the day. So let me tell you this. You say, Jeff, you mean to tell me that you believe that a person who prays that prayer and asks Jesus to come in their heart and get saved, you believe that they're going to heaven no matter what? Oh, I didn't say anything about having any confidence in any prayer. I'm going to tell you something straight up. Yes, I believe in the endurance and the perseverance of the saints, but I don't believe for a second that an untransformed life has any reasonable claims to the merits of the gospel. So what does that mean? It means, Paul says, examine yourselves whether or not you be in the faith. So the call of the gospel is not only come to Jesus, but the call of the gospel is, is there evidence that you have come to Jesus? Can you see it in your lives? 
Now, there's a danger in that people with oversensitive consciences, every time that they sin, they may feel like, oh, no, I'm, I must be lost. I couldn't do that. Well, I just want to encourage you to read the book of 1 John because the book of 1 John says, if we say we have no sin, we, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. We are still pressing through our sinful tendencies. But this is what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. And it's an undefined line, so to speak. In other words, the fear is, is that God doesn't say, if you do these five things, you're definitely in. If you do these five things, you're definitely out. It's an undefined thing because salvation was never about keeping a set of rules. God did not do, God did not send his son to come and live and die and rise in such a demonstrative way of his love so that you and I on the back end of that can say, okay, what rules do I need to obey so I go to heaven? That's not the heart of God. But neither is it the heart of God to say, just confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and never worry about it after that. So you see the tension, right? The tension on one side is that some people obsess and feel like they are not saved because they sinned or they had salvation and lost that salvation because they sinned too many times or did one of the biggies and, and they don't have any peace and they're not living in the rest that Hebrews 4 is talking about. And the other side of the equation is people say, no, I prayed that prayer. It doesn't matter how I live because God's got to save me because it's all by grace. And those two ditches hold a lot of church members. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is no Press in and stay pressing in. So we have this call to awareness. He wants us aware in verse 1 to know that beginning rightly does not guarantee finishing rightly. That we should be self-aware today of where we presently are with the Lord. You know where you are with the Lord. I'm not here to condemn anybody because I don't know where any of you are with the Lord in the heart of hearts. I couldn't possibly know that. But I am saying this. I've been studying this passage for two weeks, and I promise you there have been moments where I have groaned over my life and how it is not in certain ways at certain times and certain places is not as aligned with the heart of the Father like it could be. And so if I'm going to groan through it, you're going to groan through it with me. Amen? In essence, this first verse just kind of shakes awake any who might be spiritually dozing off. And he's like, hey, it's not flippant. It's not casual. You're actually supposed to think hard about this. Go with me a little further. Here's the second let us calling. It's our call to intensify. I said, Jeff, you mean all that wasn't intense? No, it's, it's all intense. But I, I'm, I'm actually pressing it harder because I'm pressing back against the spirit that I sense in the body of Christ in the, in the realm of casual Churchianity. Churchianity saves nobody. You're not a Christian because you're here this morning. You may be here this morning because you're a Christian, but you're not a Christian by being here today. I'll walk into my garage today. That does not automatically make me a Ferrari. I'll be in the garage. Nor does sitting in this building or listening on live stream or being in the prayer room. None of that makes us his. So let's go further. Now watch this. This is your Bible. This is not me. This is not a religious dude saying this in some kind of legalistic thing. This is the Bible. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail by the same sort of disobedience. So I went from verse 1 to verse 11, and verses 2 through 10 are giving a 
kind of a composite view of Israel's failure to enter into the rest of the promised land. You can read about that in the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, primarily the book of Numbers around chapter number 13. You're going to find out that Israel has been delivered from Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea, and 40 years have passed. A, a, a journey into the promised land that should have taken a little over a month because they did not believe. What did it look like? Numbers 13, you, the spies are going up to the border of the promised land, and they're supposed to go in. 12 men are supposed to go in and come back with a report of how to take the promised land. Not if they should take the promised land. How do we take the land that is promised to us? How do we enter into the rest that God has secured for us by covenant? Literally, they had never been there before, but God's saying, yeah, there's a bunch of people in the land I gave you. You're going to have to go over there and take care of that. And so entering into rest requires warfare. So when they get up to the border and they sent the 12 spies, you've got Joshua and Caleb and a bunch of faithless leaders. And so 12 of them go back and they say, the land, they come, they come back with a report, the land was amazing. It's a fruitful land, it's a plentiful land, it's a stunning land, it's just like God said. It's an amazing land flowing with like milk and honey, it's, it's incredible, but we're never gonna live there. And Joshua and Caleb are over there like, um, whoa, 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 uh, can, hold, hold on a second. And the other 10 guys are like, no, we can't go there because the people that are living there are giants and we felt like little grasshoppers and all of the cities that they live behind or live in are behind stone tall walls and we, we can't beat them. We're brick makers. We've been brick makers since generations and we don't know anything about warfare. So, hey, we've made it this far, but we are not about to go into the land. And Joshua and Caleb are losing their mind. But what happened was the whole nation of Israel got held hostage by the unbelief of 10 leaders. Chapter 3, the end of the chapter, if you've got your Bible open, just look at the last verse in chapter number 3. And it says that it was unbelief. They didn't believe that God would bring them into the rest that he had promised them. And then in chapter 4, that same situation is called disobedience. Um, very quickly here, Unbelief always results in disobedience, always. And for Israel, it came at a premium. It was such a high price. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's saying, in essence, this is way simplifying, he's saying, um, don't be like them. Don't come up to the border of entering fully into the rest that is yours in Jesus Christ. Don't come up to the border, but then you realize the battle's going to be so hard and the price is going to be steep and it's going to cost you and you're going to have to fight for every square inch of territory that has been given you as your inheritance in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is saying, let us strive to enter into that rest that we don't fall by that same type of disobedience that our forefathers fell to. So what, what does that mean? What does that have to do with you and me? Well, let me just give you some extractions here. Their disobedience and their unbelief was not only seen in the negative report of the 10 spies, but they also began framing up unrealistic memories of their time in Egypt. I mean, they're, they're out in the wilderness and they're, they're, they're just, they're starting to say, man, I don't like this desert. I don't, I don't like this sand. Do you remember all the, the garlic and the, and the onions and the leeks we got back in Egypt. And they start romanticizing their life as slaves. 
And so God hears all that coming out of their mouth and, and, and they're missing the fact, yeah, they had garlic and they had leeks and they had onions, they had the world, but they didn't have freedom. And they didn't have a sense of God's presence and they hadn't walked in deliverance. So part of their unbelief was looking back saying, it sure was easier, man. A lot of Christians do that. A lot of people that come to Jesus, at least on a superficial level, they, they find that it gets hard. That's why I don't tell people, if you'll just come to Jesus, your life's gonna be awesome. Do you know how wrong? Now, now listen, it'll be awesome, but not in that way. When people in, in America and in the West hear awesome, they think, I'm gonna be richer, I'm gonna be skinnier, I'm gonna be taller, my face is gonna clear up, my hair's gonna grow back, I'm gonna be wealthy, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be awesome. Sure, I, Jesus, yeah. If you'll give me that, I'll, I'll take you. And the reality is this, when you come to Jesus, you enlist in an army that has been engaged in warfare with Satan and his demons. And then all of a sudden, you, you start finding out, like, you don't have to look out there for warfare, you got it in you, because your flesh wants to do stuff that your spirit's saying, no. And so wherever you go, there's a little mini micro war going on, and then out there, there's a macro war going on. And all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're experiencing tensions and pullings and conflicts that you never experienced as a lost person. Why? Because dead people don't feel the war. You've been made alive, so now you feel the war. And you know what, you know what we, we do? We sometimes do like they did. We're like, oh, man, I remember back in the day in the clubs, and everybody knew my name. And I got to drink what I wanted to drink and sleep with who I wanted to sleep with. Sorry, just keeping it real. And I got to talk how I wanted to talk and dress how I wanted to dress. And now I've got these convictions and they are so inconvenient for me. I'm thinking Egypt was pretty good. And what, what people forget is, yeah, you forget how miserable and lost and hopeless and pointless and purposeless and isolated and afraid and and enslaved you were to your your appetites and that's that's what's happening here and so he's calling them to intensify by the way part of their unbelief was they were given to idolatry i mean you let moses disappear for a little over a month and he comes down the mountain and they got a big golden cow they're bowing down to you now me and you we don't build golden cows but i'm gonna tell you we're no less potentially idolatrous than they were we have our own little gold things that we chase after. And ultimately, Numbers 13 and 14, Exodus, it's all in there. This is what the writer is saying. He's saying, you need to make sure you are striving in order to enter into the rest. Don't those sound like polar opposites? You know, we fight for peace. We strive for rest. Yeah, you know why? Because there's forces trying to keep you out of rest. And you have to strive against those forces. You have to press into Jesus. And as you're pressing into Jesus, you're pressing through those forces. And you will eventually um, enter into a level of rest that it eluded you. Um, so go a little further with me. If you've got to leave, you've got to leave. I'm not going to be offended, I promise. Um, there is our call to remain resolved because here's where I, I feel like we really need this word right here. It's in Hebrews 4, 14, and 15. This is about enduring any and all tests that you're facing right now as a Christian, as one who is pressing in, as one who is not going backwards, as one who is crucifying the flesh daily with the affections and lusts thereof, 
as one who is denying herself or himself and taking up your cross and following Jesus, as one who is saying no to the world and not going to be a friend of a world system that is in full opposition to the holiness and the, and the love of God. We're pressing through. So he says, then let us, excuse me, since then we have a great high priest. This is why, this is why we can press in. Why? Because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. It's Jesus, the Son of God. Because of that, let's hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So up to this point, you've been, you've been hearing me what sound, talk about what sounds like big scary God. Like scary God, oh no, it's never enough. I'm doomed. He wants me to be perfect. I know I'm not perfect. If, I, if, I, if I'm not striving, I'm going to fall back. I'm going to... I'm going to be damned. I'm going to go to hell. And what do I need to do? And how do I make it happen? And, and I get it. That's, it's, listen, it's intense. It's supposed to rattle us awake. Up to this point, it's not overly good news. It feels like a lot of pressure, right? Right? It does. I mean, I don't know anybody that's like, oh, I'm loving this, man. This is awesome. This is great. I think everybody feels the weight of it. But the weight is not illegitimate. It's legit. Because it's, it's literally talking about whether or not we're going to fully enter into everything that God has planned for us and provided for us. Listen to me. Jesus did not come so you'd go to heaven. That's not why he came. And that's the American gospel. Believe in Jesus and go to heaven when you die. Well, what about between the moment you believe and you die? What about all that? Is that nothing land? Is that the wilderness? Is that God's will for us to wait until we die before we experience his peace, his rest? Of course not. Because the Lord's desire is not transportation, it's transformation. It's not transporting you to heaven when your 80 years are done. It's transforming you from two nanoseconds after you believed and being transformed all the way up until you were finally glorified. But we think of it so much as, whoo, man, I'm glad I, I got Jesus because now I can go to heaven when I die. And the American gospel is, has compromised the truth of the word because God's purpose in saving you is that you might know him deeply, increasingly, lastingly, joyfully, exhilaratingly, that you might know him and let me tell you what we have to do. And it's not just knowing him for the sake of him being known. He understands this, that the deepest pleasure that can, can be experienced by a human being, the deepest pleasure that can be experienced by a human being is the revelation of who God is and what he says and how he feels towards us. There's no greater pleasure. And most Christians don't, don't, yeah, if he wants that for me, that's cool. If he wants to give me a Holy Ghost dose, I'll, I'll take it. And we don't press in for it. And the Lord's like, no, don't. You're going to get it when you stand in my presence, but part of our intimacy is I want you to get it now because I love those who press into me by faith. That means we're doing it together. When you stand before the Lord in glory, he's done it all. You're not doing anything except arriving. You're just there. 
This is the only time you can get to know him and enter into that partnership of longing to know the one who loves you and has done. This is it. And guys, listen, I'm not, I'm not harping. Some of y'all probably think, is he looking at me? I'm not looking at anybody. I'm just saying I'm, I'm looking at us. And Jesus has become the, the hors d'oeuvre to the main course of our life, which is what we are doing, what we want, what we think, what we believe, how we act. And, and we'll just, a little Jesus on the side, mm, tastes good on Sunday, don't mess with me Monday, please. And so what he's saying is this, hey, listen, you don't have to live like that. And in the context of the Hebrews, most of them were drawing back, not because it was inconvenient, but primarily because their lives were on the line. People were getting killed. They were being persecuted. They were losing their families and losing their everything, every material thing. And so this is why he says, hey, remember that our high priest, Jesus, the son of God, um, he's a high priest that actually feels you. He feels your heart. When you hurt, he actually hurts. He's touched by the feelings of your weaknesses. He sympathizes. And in every respect, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Very quickly, teaching moment. That does not mean that Jesus endured every unique temptation that you endure. Jesus was not tempted in the weaknesses of what it means to be a female in her weakness. He wasn't tempted in that type of precision. What it is is this. He was tempted with the greatest temptation of all. He bore the weight of sin. He had the cup of God's wrath extended to him. In his humanity, he did not want to drink the cup of God's wrath. But in his divinity, in his submission in his humanity to God the Father's divinity, he took the whole cup and he drank it. There would have been no greater temptation than to preserve himself at our expense. So in that way, he who has endured the greatest temptation can sympathize with all of our lesser temptations. So that means whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you're afraid of, whatever is threatening you, whatever is drawing you back away, whatever it is that's motivating you to give in a little or to back up a little or to let loose a little or to, to kind of downscale your pressing in and just, I'm not going to go backwards. I'm just going to stay in neutral. I'm going to put it in park for a minute. I'm going to catch my breath. I'm not talking about working and serving. I'm talking about the heart posture. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, just, hey, don't forget that where you're weak, he feels it. There's, do we have any classically, raise your hand if you are, you would consider yourself a classically trained musician. Raise your hand. Some of y'all are just being humble. Raise your hand. Yeah, so we've got several in the room. I'm not. So everything I'm about to say, I read. There's something called sympathetic resonance. Raise your hand if you know what sympathetic resonance is. Man, you're spoiling it, man. I was hoping to drop a bomb that nobody knew. Okay. So sympathetic resonance, we used to have a baby grand piano. I miss it sometimes. It sat right over here in the corner. And if I had wheeled this little wimpy, rinky-dink, you know, falling apart at the seams upright, and let's just say for, for argument's sake it was in tune. And if I came over here and that grand piano is open and it's sitting over there, and in the weak, not powerful, not impressive, but I hit a C. And that begins to fill the room. Do you know what happens in that grand piano? This sound, sound is vibration. It enters in, and the C, one of, what middle C over here, begins to vibrate with that same note. 
That's called sympathetic resonance. A note played over here will vibrate with a corresponding note over here. That's what happens when we're struck. We're the wimpy, broken, unimpressive piano that when we are struck, the grand piano sitting on his throne in heaven says, I reverberate with that. I feel what you feel. What you are crying, I feel the cry of. What you are being, when you are being struck, I am being moved. We have to remember that because the whole argument here from the writer of Hebrews is don't go back because it's hard because you're not pressing in alone. He not only is watching, he's feeling it. It's not some distant, detached, clinical observation. He says, what moves your strings moves my strength. And that is supposed to invigorate and motivate and empower us to continue to press in. He's been tempted. He's, listen, he knows what it's like to be a human under the sun. And then we get down to this last one. This is verse 16. So what do we do? This is our call to boldly approach. This is what it means to press in. Here it is. Let us then with confidence draw near, press in, draw near, press in to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace when? In our time of need. Find grace to help in our time of need. When we're talking about pressing in, yes, we are warring against the forces of wickedness. We are warring against our own flesh. We are warring against a world system. My goodness, friends, listen. I don't even have to. I don't even have to take a moment and point out all the things that are happening at level 900 right now in our culture, which defy the name and the nature of God whether it be sexual orientation and now with the ever-elongating list of gender choices, whether it be the absolute heartless lovelessness to marginalized people, and so much of that is fueled by people who call themselves Christians who believe in the gospel of God helps those that help themselves, which is not in the Bible, whether it be the, the deconstruction of, of people's faith, you know that's happening. Parents, if you're, if, if you're not pressing in to your children about what they're thinking and believing and hearing, I've got an adult daughter and an adolescent son, and the things that they share with me, even from among nominal Christians, the Christians are now having to rethink, is that really true or not true? And, and we're not talking about peripheral stuff. We're talking about clear stuff. I'm not here being the grumpy old pastor. I'm here saying, this is the spirit of the age and the enemy knows his time is short. And so when he knows his, his cold eternal death is coming, he is turning up the heat of the flames of his temptations. That's why you see prominent Christian songwriters deciding that they're not Christians anymore and that the God of the Bible was a false construct, and now they're going to take a little bit of what they like about the God of the Bible. They're going to take those pieces. They're going to import the clay of their own reasoning, and they're going to fashion a God that they like and still call him God, still call him Jesus. 
So when we're pressing in, we're pressing against that, but ultimately this is what we're pressing in for. We're pressing in to know him and to experience him. We're told to boldly do it. That's the way the King James renders verse 16. Confidence is what it's talking about. It means, hey, yes, as you're striving to enter into the rest, lest you fall short. As you are having a holy fear concerning the possibility of you not finishing race, your race, which would invalidate the way you began your race. If you're not pressing in, then you are being drawn away. But you don't have to be drawn away because pressing in is not supposed to be scary. It's actually the antidote to fear. God's not the one we're afraid of. God's the one we're desperate for. God's the one we're saying, we must know you. We must hear from you. We must experience you. Lord, we believe help our unbelief. Lord, I love you, but I know I don't love you always more than I love me. And if you, if you think you're immune from that, He says, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, and when you do, you're going to receive the mercy that you crave. Not the judgment, not the slap down, not the elbow to the, the throat, but you're going to find mercy. Mercy is to the miserable, the afflicted, the helpless, those who have failed, those who have stumbled. Where God, as you press in in this fearful incredibly majestic God whose word is a double-edged sword that renders us standing before him naked and exposed and yet as we press in in our exposure in our nakedness we can't hide anything he doesn't want us to he literally we, we, we used to sing this as an invitation song to see if people would repent and come to Jesus at the end of the service just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was left for me. We do it in the old song like that. And we made that primarily kind of like an evangelistic thing. Let me just tell you, you're always supposed to be pressing in just as you are. What other way is there? What can we fake in the presence of God? We just come as we are. And he says, I have mercy for you if you'll come. I have grace to help you if you'll come. You say you're destitute and you're in a time of need and you're drawing back and you're, you're fearful and you're wondering about the future. I have grace to help you in your time of need. I have sympathetic resonance with you. I vibrate every time you're stricken. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as I give you these four things very quickly. Here's what, here's what, here's what he's saying to you, not to the guy next to you, to the lady in front of you, to you. He's saying, endure steadfastly. Hold fast your confession. The enemy is trying to back you off of walking in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's trying to back you off. He'll take a year if he has to. He'll take five years if he can just keep incrementally moving you further away and if you're in park or you're in neutral he's winning he's winning if you're not pressing in he's winning let him be exposed may the holy spirit right now show you any and every way that you have been seduced in your heart to stop pressing in 
Hold fast to your confession of faith in Jesus as Lord. Secondly, expectantly approach. Let us then with confidence draw near. We're about to give you an opportunity to do it. Draw near. Not for chastisement. There's nothing to fear to those who draw near. There's nothing. Say, well, Jeff, I'm unclean. Well, you won't be if you'll just keep drawing in, pressing in, drawing near. Say, Jeff, I'm, I'm in a season where I'm the guy that you're talking about. Good. Come boldly before the throne of grace to experience mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. Come today. Get out of park. You will experience mercy. You need it. I need it. There's not a person in the room who doesn't need to be an, a lasting, ongoing candidate for the mercy of God. I want his mercy. You can receive it. And then you encounter grace. You obtain grace. Find help for your time of need. See, this is the rest that he's calling you to press into to strive to make sure you get into it. That means you gotta be energized. You gotta be proactive. You gotta be intentional. You can't be casual. You will be a victim. You'll be a casualty of the war if you're casual. That will be the place that you eventuate. Why didn't Israel do it? I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. Why didn't Israel do it? Why didn't they enter into their promised rest? because they were disobedient. You mean they broke all the rules, Jeff? Oh, no, no, it wasn't that simple. They just didn't believe God. God said, I want you to enter into this thing I've provided for you. And they said, we can't. God said, no, 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 you really can. I will fight with you. Your job is to press in and to go and believe me, and I'm going to fight your battles. You're going to sling the sword. You're going to have to get face-to-face -face with the enemy. You're going to knock down some walls you have to show up for the fight, but I'm going to go with you. And they just said, no, nah, we, we actually don't think you will. And so they lived in the wilderness until they died. And they could have flourished in the rest that God had provided. Church, let this message sink down into our ears. Let it flow into our hearts. And let it harness our will if you're 14 years old in the room, this is for you. If you're 96, this is for you. So how do you know? Because we never are finished pressing in. We continue. Why? Because it's the ongoing call. It's the key component of warfare. You press in, you press on, and eventually you will press through. So, Father, in Jesus' mighty name, let there be faith in the room. We take authority over every seducing spirit right now that is seeking to undermine the seed of the word. In the name of Jesus, we cleanse this room from all interference from any fallen angel seeking to corrupt the word. And Holy Spirit, we ask you, increase faith in this room. May the fear of God become faith in God to press into the rest that you have. Come, Holy Spirit. Divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Bring the sharp two-edged sword and do surgery on us now. 